Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really excited to welcome our guest, Seth Letterman, to our podcast today. Seth is the CEO and founder of Tonics Pharmaceuticals. Seth, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on the program. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you could uh, give us a quick sense of your background and how you got to where you are today. Thank you. I was a professor at Columbia Medical School in various roles for about 20 years. I was an immunologist and I worked in the area of molecular immunology. And I've now been in the biopharmaceutical industry for about 20 years, mostly in companies that I've founded and had the original ideas for. I've been at Tonics now for over 10 years. This has been a big and exciting time for me and opportunity to work in some very interesting areas. Tonics is now a public company. We're on NASDAQ. We have about 15 employees and we have almost as many programs. We have a really rich, diverse pipeline that spans all the way from a phase three program in fibromyalgia, which is a pain disorder, to preclinical programs in vaccines using biologics. The tonics is really focused on exciting science and important medical problems. Those are really the themes that pull our pipeline together. Awesome. Well, it only sounds like it's been a storied both career as well as a business so far. You know, maybe drilling in, we'd love to learn a little bit more about Tonic specifically, especially as a founder. I'm sure you've had some really interesting ups and downs, right, throughout that process. And so we'd love to learn a little bit more about the company, its core focus, and then go into uh, the founding story as well and, and how it got created. Yes, it has been an exciting journey at Tonics. We were founded on fibromyalgia and really on the program that's in phase three today. And I think that just shows you how long it is to take a drug from, you know, the beginning into phase three. I'm a rheumatologist in addition to being a molecular biologist. And fibromyalgia is something that is a condition that is cared for mostly by rheumatologists. So I have a long history of treating fibromyalgia patients before I got to tonics. And the program we're working on is a bedtime sublingual cyclobenzaprine tablet called TNX102SL. It's an experimental medicine. It's not approved. It is a daily medicine taken at bedtime. And our concept with that is that by improving sleep quality, we seem to be able to improve fibromyalgia symptoms and improve fibromyalgia at the syndromal level. And I I'm making those statements based on a phase two study and a phase three study where we've already studied a large amount of patients. In both those studies, we learned a lot and we're applying those lessons in the current phase three study, which we started enrolling last year. Awesome. And as you think about the business's trajectory, obviously it's been a public company for several years now. I know that's a interim milestone that many biotech companies look to achieve. Can you help us understand what that experience is like to take a company public on the NASDAQ? Being public has been very exciting, and it's a wonderful platform to do the kind of work that we're doing. We operate in an ecosystem of institutional investors who focus on public companies. 
and they are really very knowledgeable. Many of them have MDs or PhDs or sometimes MD PhDs. They specialize in the area of therapeutics and the ecosystem of being a public company in the life sciences is very interesting and, and really almost uniquely an ecosystem that exists in the United States. I think there are many IPOs in Europe, but the United States has a unique secondary market so that, you know, from time to time, we have been able to raise money to fund our ambitious plans as they evolve. And as we'll get later to the story, you know, just recently, already this year, we've raised almost $30 million. And that is basically, to a large extent, it's to embark on this new program of developing a vaccine for COVID-19. Amazing. So, you know, when you think about the competencies and the the core IP that you guys are developing, you know, one of the things that we've talked about prior is the vaccine vector platform that you guys have evolved and, and grown and invested in. Obviously, it sounds like, you know, coronavirus, given the modern era, is certainly a target for said platform. But could you maybe just start out with and give us some info on where you guys began with that platform, some of the initial indications you were focused on and uh, what some of the progress there was, and then go from there. Thank you. The vaccine story really is an epic story. So it stretches over quite a long period of time. Way back when I was a professor in the late 90s at Columbia, I was teaching immunology and I got very interested in the life of Edward Jenner. Edward Jenner was an English physician scientist who identified vaccinia as the first vaccine. This was uh, 1798. He published a book called The Inquiry, which is some people think the most important medical text ever. By using what he also called cowpox, he was able to immunize humans and protect them from smallpox. And Edward Jenner's vaccine, Vaccinia, was then spread all over the world and has been carried forward for now 220 years in the different countries where it was brought shortly after he discovered it. The word vaccine comes from his work. Vaca in Latin means cow, and vaccination meant that it came from a cow. You know, now the term vaccination has been used to apply to many other things. And in the course of reading about Jenner and studying his life, at one point, I actually had an ambition to write a biography of Edward Jenner's life. I realized from the work of a scholar named Derek Baxby and other sources that what Jenner called cowpox actually came from a horse. And once this realization was made, and again, I credit Derek Baxby, Jenner's attribution of cowpox to a horse is very clear. I mean, it, he clearly states on the second page of the most famous text in medicine, The Inquiry, that it came from a horse. He was able to appreciate that it was transmitted from horses to cows by the unwashed hands of the men who worked on the horse's hooves, who were called the farriers. So Jenner was able to understand that this virus, and he coined that word by the way, also, was transmitted from the cows to the horses by the vector of the human hands, and then from the cow's udders to the hands of the milkmaids, where they would get lesions that he also called cowpox. And he realized that those lesions protected them from smallpox. So that was really the first vaccine concept. So what we began doing 
many years ago was to develop something as close to Edward Jenner's original vaccine as possible. And it turns out that in 1976, there was horsepox identified in Mongolia. And a sample of that was later sequenced by scientists at the United States Department of Agriculture. And we realized that this horsepox that had been isolated in Mongolia 200 years after Jenner was closer to what Jenner used than the modern vaccine is. So we recreated that virus together with colleagues from University of Alberta in Canada. And we're developing that virus both as a vaccine for smallpox and as a vaccine vector platform for other conditions. That sounds uh, like a very interesting uh, way to identify new vaccines. And when you look at this uh, overall approach, it sounds like you did most of it throughout the confines of uh, being in academia. It started in academia, but it really took the infrastructure that we have as a biopharmaceutical company to take it mm. the next steps. Got it. As a professor, you know, I could have written about it, uh, <laughs> had some ideas, but to actually bring it to practice has been quite an involved process. For one thing, together with colleagues at University of Alberta in Canada, we synthesized horsepox at the time it was. I believe only the fourth virus ever synthesized. And I believe today it's still the largest virus ever mm -hmm. synthesized. Furthermore, we've done considerable amount of product development on it, including a study that we reported in January where we immunized macaques with horsepox and confirmed that it protected them from monkeypox, which is a model of smallpox. Interesting. You know, before we sort of drill into the, you know, ways in which you're leveraging this platform for coronavirus, I'd love to understand, given that you've made this really interesting transition from being a professor at Columbia to now being the CEO and founder of a biotechnology company, you made a really interesting point around how far you can take a program or a drug in an academic environment versus the infrastructure and the environment in a biotechnology company. Can you help maybe us and, and the broader audience understand how you think about that translational aspect and how other folks and aspiring entrepreneurs and current academics who are listening today should be thinking about their potential medicines in that regard? The strength of the U.S. biotech industry really depends on the strength of the academic community. The ideas and the technology that come out of academia are just unending and breathtaking. Every month, every day practically. Some new thing happens that is probably worthy of commercialization. But academia by and large can only take things so far. And companies are well set up, if they can interact with academic institutions, are well set up to do a handoff where academia hands them programs at a certain stage and then the company can take them further on. The academic funding, having been a professor, I mean, it's very important to maintain NIH grants. And NIH grants take about 120% of someone's focus to obtain, to renew, and to maintain. So there really isn't a lot of bandwidth for academics to go off and do things that aren't cutting edge. And that's really another opportunity for companies like ours. I mean, I'm sure that many professors are fully capable of doing the kind of things that we do, but they're too busy and they don't have the resources. I mean, we just have access to capital and contractors that are not really available to professors by and large. But I think the cities where it 
operates the best seem to be Boston and San Francisco, because look at the incredible number of exciting companies there. But New York is also a very dynamic environment. There are not as many companies, but you know the science on individual level is really superb. Awesome. So you know, with that, as you look to leverage this platform for other indications, obviously coronavirus has been one of the ones that has been uh, top of mind given the current global environment. Can you help us understand where that program is at today and uh, what you see for its progress soon? Sure. At the beginning, we were interested in the Horsepox platform because it could be a vector for new or different infectious diseases. Horsepox is closely related to vaccinia. It looks to us like a primordial vaccinia, a vaccinia that still has genes that have been discarded from vaccinia over 200 years. But we're guided by a lot of vaccine research in terms of how to manipulate horsepox. So it's clear how to express new genes in horsepox. They can be rapidly cloned into horsepox. And one of the big advantages of horsepox and vaccinia is that they do not integrate. So they infect cells on vaccination, typically epithelial cells and keratinocytes, and they have robust expression of both their own antigens and also exogenous antigens that they're carrying as a vector. And what we are so excited about is the strong T-cell response that's induced by horsepox vaccination. And just about everything turns on T-cells, but particularly horsepox turns on a TH1, a T-helper cell 1 type immune response. And we think that that is potentially well-suited to protect against COVID-19. It's amazing. As you see the landscape of infectious diseases evolving, one of the observations I've made is that the historical innovators in this space, the larger pharmaceutical companies, have spent less time in infectious diseases. What do you sort of see as the landscape forward-looking in terms of innovation and new types of vaccines and therapies? Certainly, there's been a change in focus in big pharma over the years. And I would say that maybe it's happened more in infectious disease and other areas. But across the board, big pharma has really focused on marketing and commercialization. And they are really depending on small companies to innovate. And my perception of the business model is really colored by a Wall Street Journal article from at least 10 years ago describing the modern pharmaceutical industry as the Hollywood model. And by Hollywood model, they meant that if you go back to the 1920s, the Hollywood studios owned the cameras, the actors' scripts, the actors, the writers, the scripts, the movie theaters, and the projectors. So it was a soup to nuts, vertically integrated enterprise. And today, the Hollywood model is that the studios, by and large, do marketing and commercialization. And I think the same thing happened to the pharmaceutical industry. And this was the point raised by this Wall Street Journal article in perspective. The idea that if you just go back 50 years, 
pharmaceutical industry in the United States was vertically integrated from discovery to commercialization, soup to nuts. And now it's really focusing on commercialization. And I think that makes sense because pharma decided that they weren't particularly good at innovation as they got bigger and bigger. And the ecosystem also works because the goal of many biopharmaceutical companies is to either partner their products with big pharma or to be acquired by big pharma. So I think it's a very healthy ecosystem and it's very exciting for someone like me to be in the space where I think my skills are best utilized, which is at the development stage. Wonderful. Well, you know, maybe to close out here, any final parting wisdom or advice you could share for the broader audience, especially for those who are looking to translate, say, scientific and academic insights into commercial products? Yes. First of all, good luck. It's very exciting. I can't think of a more exciting career. It certainly looks like the market is going to be challenging near term for private companies, but I have noticed that a number of the biopharmaceutical focused VCs have just raised fresh funds, some of them quite big funds. I saw Arch, a couple of other ones have just reported fairly significant closings. And uh, I think, you know, generally, I think the sector has held up pretty well under the circumstances. So I think that it's an exciting time. You may have to wait a little bit longer to get funded than last fall, but I still think there's great opportunity. And I think it's going to be a very exciting period in the pharmaceutical drug development space. When the FDA is more responsive than ever, it's been modernized, things are getting approved, novel things are getting approved disease agnostic approvals for cancer drugs. It's a revolutionary concept, you know, but it's commonplace now. The science, biomarkers, everything is happening so quickly. I think that to be starting now is really a very exciting time to start. And if there are a few bad months between your idea and getting funded, urge you to stick with it. Great advice, Seth. I just want to thank you for uh, joining us today and, and sharing both your story as well as that of Tonics and hopefully some actionable advice for uh, the broader entrepreneurial community. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alok. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.